Start your journey and further your education with Moat Business College. Not sure what direction to take? Need more time before going on to higher education or a career change? With up to 20 QQI Level 5 and 6 courses to choose from, we've got the course for you. Find out more and apply now at moatbusinesscollege.com. Broadcasting live from the little town of Clara, County Offaly, it's What's the Story with Lloyd Bracken. Get in touch today through all our social channels and have your say. Oh, and thanks for listening. Now it's over to you, Lloyd. What's the story? Hi, everyone. Very welcome back to What's the Story with myself, Lloyd Bracken. Again, a huge response last week's podcast with Nora Kavanagh. I do try and get back to everyone's comments, but it was a busy week. Also, thanks very much to Will Faulkner on Midlands 103 for having me on the Friday panel last week. Also, just like to take this opportunity to wish all our publicans in the town who are back open for business this week. Very best to look with that. My next guest in the hot seat uh, had some of his artwork commissioned by Tyra Banks, Roisin Murphy, Iggy Azalea, and also had his work featured on Madonna's Rebel Heart Tour. His work has been lauded by huge stars such as Shakira, Will I Am, Alanis Morissette, and J.K. Rowling. In 2018, he had a sellout show for his Irish debut to one of Ireland's most prominent collectors. It's a pleasure to introduce to you Vincent Devine. What's the story? All good, Lloyd. Thanks for having me. Vincent, was it written in the stars that should be uh, called Vincent after another very famous artist? Well, let's go right back to the very <laughs> beginning. So, I was I was asking my mother what my where my namesake came from. So she said uh, initially uh, a pamphlet came in through the door, one of the mislets, and she said that she liked the name Vincent. And then they, they bought like the Don McLean song Starry Night. So uh, that was where the namesake came from. So maybe it was I don't know, uh, but it was always something that was in the blood anyway. You know, it was your your mum uh, Hazel and your father Beanie both very well known people here in Clara. Mm-hmm. What are some of your earliest memories going up, Vincent? So I grew up in Beachmount and I would have remembered, uh, f- from the art spectrum, I'd say I would have always remembered Paddy Hamill who lived next door. And Paddy was always kind of a champion for me to always keep going and keep doing it. That was like my earliest, you could say, memory of somebody kind of pushing me a little, not pushing, but being very encouraging. Now, my, my parents were always kind of just, geez, if I kept him quiet for a while, sure, let him off and let him, let him draw in his room or whatever. So I was encouraged from a young age and kind of um, then obviously went on and it was kind of tough because when I went into secondary school they didn't have it as a subject. So they said they were going to bring it in and never ultimately brought it in. So uh, I kind of had to wing it. But, you know, it was kind of a blessing in disguise I suppose a little bit because I wasn't really touched by any kind of academic. Right, so it wasn't uh, a huge drawback to you then? No, in retrospect it wasn't. I kind of felt very kind of undersupported to a point. And then the poor old teachers had their hands full as well because, I mean, I was doing... um, caricatures of like Bruce Sylvester and stuff and all oh, I mean, that. That went down like a lead balloon. Brilliant. But the, the problem was with it was is I was able to capture something about their eyes and when they looked at it, some of them would kind of get a bit of their backs up a bit because they could kind of see themselves reflected back because I was able to capture their eyes. Now, I didn't, wasn't so kind to all the other features, you know. Uh, it depends how kind of uh, they were nice to me, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it really was. In retrospect, it was good to kind of not have any interference from kind of anybody academically, you know. Right. It stood to me long term. So going back to your neighbour, Paddy Hamilton, what kind of stuff was he doing that to draw you to it? Like, for example, if I was drawing something and I couldn't do it properly, I get really frustrated, like most kids do. And Paddy would be like, oh, just keep at it, just keep doing it, you'll you'll get it eventually. And I just remember being encouraged because Paddy was very much about, you know, if you just keep practising, you'll get better, like everything. You know, if you just put your time into it and your energy into it, you will get better at it eventually. So that kind of, at a very young age, gave me the push. So you think that was where the bug started then? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, my mother would have been arty, kind of, but she would have kind of just drawn like mermaids and stuff. So kind of very kind of basic little sketches. So I kind of copied what she was doing and used to kind of draw like just female figures and stuff like that. And then my generation was very much about hyper stimulus from all the television shows. You had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you had Power Rangers. So it was colour, colour, colour. So I suppose our generation, because I'm 34 now, our generation had this kind of constant barrage of advertisement, stimulation, things like that. And I think because I was artistically inclined anyway, I was left-handed. I think it just kind of gave me that little bit of an extra push. So I would like draw like the Power Rangers and I would draw like Jurassic Park came out and stuff. And I'd draw everything that was popular in popular culture. And that could have kind of led into then the celebrity portraits and the thing. But I was always very much, I was very much being sold to. I mean, I was, I was the client and, you know, they were trying to sell me whatever they could sell me. So that was kind of um, the early leanings into it. And even now to this very day, I'll sit and I'll draw something I couldn't draw when I was seven. Because that little kid's still in there who couldn't draw and he was crumpling a piece of paper and, you know, shouting and roaring. So once a month, generally, I'd sit and I'll draw something like a Power Ranger. I mean, it, it, it seems ridiculous for someone who's... But is that your release to draw something like that? It, it's not just a release. It's more of my acknowledgement of all the struggle he had to go through as a little kid to kind of say, look, I'm actually okay now with drawing, now I can draw the Power Ranger, so I do it. But I don't know why I, I, just, I just did it as a practice. I just It's a constant thing that I do. And it seems to kind of, I don't know, release stuff and just kind of keep everything clear. And, you know, it's I, there's actually, I've done a lot of research into it about, like people kind of suppressing their inner child and, you know, not doing the things that you love doing when you were a kid or things like that. So I've kind of delved a little bit deeper into it now and I kind of figured I was doing it all along, you know, just trying to, you know, acknowledge him really. Very interesting. So mm. has uh, any of that curved onto your recent paintings then? It's it's funny because, I, I like, I have three kids now and uh, so I've, Annalise nine and Rowan is five and we have a new baby Taya, she's one. And people think that I'm kind of, you know, speaking with, I'm always doing stuff with kids. I don't do a thing with kids. I don't do any art with them. And I think the reason for that is because I, I, I can't imagine growing up with anything other than haystacks, you know, like, you know, all these kind of random stuff that everyone grew up with, like chocolate box stuff of someone in Dublin is called it. So I let them kind of respond naturally to stuff as, I, as I'm changing. And the, the, the eldest now, Annalie, is quite arty. So I'm letting her kind of find her own feet with it and stuff yeah. instead of kind of trying to mould her. Right. I was going to come to that. Obviously, your three kids. Like, like when my lads, I have four kids inside and they said to me, will you draw me? It's either a farm or what does Vincent Devine draw with his kids? It must be... Yeah, nothing. Isn't it hilarious? <laughs> I don't do a thing with them. <laughs> Not a thing. And like, like Annalena was starting to kind of show signs of wanting to come up. But like, I, I have moved the studio out of the house. So I'm now out in Clancolig in Tullamore over Expert Electrical. And um, it's been great to kind of get the space away from kind of kids. So for example, I could be sitting in the, I, I did have a, a studio in the house. And then when Rowan was kind of coming up, he was obviously the boy, so he was an absolute headball, you know, he was just a header. So I'd be there painting a little branch, lovely little branch. Next thing you get a bang in the window and sure the branch is gone and the sort of painting has to be something else then. So me and Lynn had a chat about it and I said, look, it's time to kind of get it out of the house now. So I do have that space, but I do bring the kids in every now and again and I'll say, look, have at it there and do whatever you want to do and just let them be free with it. You know, and that's the, that's I find the problem with with um, people teaching children as well is they don't give them enough of an avenue to find their own. And that's what I I was lucky enough to be allowed to find my own um, visual. Um, and a lot of people try to kind of rein kids in, and art is the one thing that can be free in. You know, there's no rules to it. So I mean, 
it's it's very important, I think, for kids just to allow them to find their own little voice and their own little visual and then let them kind of jump off from that then. Just going back to your school life for a minute, you said that there was no kind of outlet in secondary school, but you went on to, where did you go to after that then? Just when when I went in, it was a kind of a toss-up between Killinaka of the Art and Clara, and then Clara said they are going to bring it in, and then whatever happened, they didn't come in. So when I went and did the Leaving Cert Art, I was the only person sitting in the gym, the only person in the giant oh. gym in Clara. And uh, I had just gla- I skipped the whole first question and everything, and I just glanced at like Picasso the night before, and then Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter came up in the last question, and I was like, Jesus, there must be someone looking down. So then after that, then I went and just um, I went and did a PLC course in Moat Business College, mm-hmm. and that really kind of set me up. So it's really intensive. So you're drawn, you go in five days a week. You're drawn from ten in the morning till four in the day. And you just have your your little breaks there or whatever. And then you're constantly drawn. So you can't book it better. And then painting, I had a massive block of painting. So I couldn't paint. Could not paint for the life of me. There was just something mentally blocking me from painting. So you heard it here first. Vincent Devine couldn't paint. Yeah, I, I actually I couldn't paint a pepper and a tomato. Like, that's what we were doing. Right, green pepper, red tomato. It's little nightmares about the fucking things. And uh, sure enough, my lecture just kind of kept at me and kept... So there's always been that little kind of encouragement where people seen something that I didn't see myself. It just gave me a little nudge and then it kind of nudged me in the right direction. So Moat was absolutely um, very integral for my progress and me kind of getting my own kind of, um, I suppose, my self-esteem up in regards to my art. Because it's a very personal thing as well. And, you know, usually when you're in school, back in my day, it's either you're good or you're not good at art. And if you're good, you were like, you know, oh, can you draw this from me, Vin? And can you do this? Yeah. And um, then I went uh, and went to Canada for a few months and did beekeeping over there um, with um, my my cousins to be divines. My, my father kind of encouraged me to stay on. And I said, no, I need to come back and uh, I came back and went to Limerick and just had hell of it in Limerick it just it wasn't so much there was a lot of nepotism there where you know if your parents were known or if you had kind of a few quid or whatever and uh, you, you could climb up a little bit quicker and your skill just wasn't enough it was kind of how you wrapped it up and then served it to them and I was seeing people that were being very inauthentic and getting better marks than me and I would challenge them every step of the way I'd say look here's my sketchbook you know, fail me if you want to fail me. I remember it was Rag Week and I just threw my sculpture project together and I went in and he said, where have you been all week? And I said, it's Rag Week. I mean, where, where's anyone been? And of course he took an, an instant dislike to me because I was gobby, I was mouthy, right? He said, uh, I'm going to fail you. I said, you know what? I said, what you'll do is look at that sketchbook and then you fail me and then I'm going to bring your name up then and then we'll see how far that goes. So he kind of just passed me. So I said, right, that's a happy medium now because I generally wasn't. So was that, was that confidence then or, or arrogance on your part? No, it was just being sure that I had put enough work in to get by that he couldn't fail me. So, I mean, the one thing about arrogance in art is it's something that really puts my back up because um, when I see people being very arrogant and egoic and about what they can do as an artist or anyone in the creative sphere, I think it's kind of a bit of a cod because, I mean, you can't really rationally explain why you're so good at music and where it comes from. Like, I can't explain to you why I can look at you and then recreate you on a two-dimensional piece of paper. It seems like magic to me. So that's where I kind of devoid myself of the ego part of it because I'm like, look, I don't know why I was born like this. I'm just lucky to be able to make a living from the gift that I uncovered and was nurtured. So I kind of tend to devoid... But when I see people doing that with art, artists think they're, you know, hot 
SH1T, it really puts my back up because I think, you know, this is kind of bigger than you. This is like, you know, there's something happening there that people don't really understand and you have a natural talent there. Just look at your natural talent as opposed to your ego mm. and trying to push your agenda, you know. Do you, enjoy, do you enjoy that art? To be able to do what you do, do you enjoy it? Oh yeah, if I didn't, if I didn't paint, I'm like the Antichrist. It's You couldn't live with me. It's unbelievable. So it's, it's just so much part of who I am that I need to create. And even when I couldn't make money from it, I, I was teaching a few kids in the house and I was... So, I mean, I worked in the cinema and I worked in Dunn's um, just to kind of get some regular income coming in. But when I was in Dunn's stores, um, I, two, two of the mothers came and said, look, you're doing art in college. We teach our kids how to do art. And I said, yeah, I said, I'll give it a go. Like, and I just started off with a few with the kitchen table and then I grew it a little bit. And then I was doing some work for schools and in the resource centre and stuff like that. I really kind of missed that because... Now I'm very kind of, I'm, I'm isolated, I'm on my own, so I'm up in the studio talking to myself and I'm like, oh, this is a great idea, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I, I do miss the interaction in kind of getting, helping people to find their own artistic voice because when people do find it, they're very grateful and they're also very grateful for the fact they're not all going around painting like me. Does, which, that, does that come with age, do you think, Vincent? That voice? Um, I don't know. I mean, some people, like, we're living in such a fast society, like, you don't really have, no one has a time to sit down and paint. So when they come to me for an hour or two, they, they kind of feel like, right, well, I'm here, I need to just get something productive down and put it down. And to be able to facilitate that is great. But coming with age, I don't know, because I've taught so many different ages and different levels that it really depends on the person. If you really want to find your, like, if I, if I brought you into the studio, I'd find something other than music in you. I'll, I'll get it out of you. Right. But everyone has an artistic voice. Now, I mean as in, in the arts. I know you're in the musical sphere, but I'm talking about like in the visual arts. And you can, I think you can find it with anybody. And I think it's something that's deeply ingrained in us from the time, you know, we were cavemen. I just think it's something. And that's what I do is I study history as well. So when I'm painting, I'm studying the timeline of human history and art. Now, European history. And it's so fascinating. So I, I don't listen to music anymore. I just listen to lectures all the time while I'm painting. And if I find something interesting, then I'll go and I'll do. But like, going back to your question, it's all about your, your, your intent. And like anything else, art is a practice and it requires practice as well. So if you do it enough and you have a good enough teacher that's going to facilitate that and take you with the good and the bad, generally you'll find something, you know, no matter what age you are, really. Vincent, where was your big break then? When did it all come together for you? I suppose... Um, I I was I was living with my mum and I was doing paintings and drawing them on the radiators and stuff and then people were coming in and saying oh where are you getting all these paintings from you know back of a car boot like and uh, she goes no they're my sons so I was selling them for I started selling them for like fifty quid and bits and pieces so I started to get confident that my work could sell so I started doing kind of shows and did stuff in Tullamore and stuff and then I seen um, the the national art fair on Nationwide. And that was in 2011, I want to say, or early 2012. And I looked at it and it went out really, really big. And I said, geez, could you imagine having a, a spot in there? And I said to Lynn then, I said, well, i just contact them and see, is there a space? So I scraped all, there was one space for 800 quid, scraped all the money I could together, got my, my little stand and made a few quid out. And that was the start of it. So then I started doing the railings on Stevens Green. So what I did was, I before I kind of, really pushed at it I wanted to cut my teeth so basically I came up from Tullamore we went to Stevens Green hung on the railings and I figured look nobody knows who I am up here I'm no better or worse than anybody else so it kind of set the cat among the pigeons and I seen the stuff starting to sell and then I went to the RDS and I just built up from there as well so 
in in my kind of art practice, I'm always doing two things at once. So at that stage, I was doing the portraits and I was doing the the my surrealist work. So like way back, um, so away from the trees, which is kind of what I've been known for, kind of kind of around now, especially in Dublin and stuff. And I was doing the portraits, and then I did a singer. There's a band called Morchiba, and their lead singer Sky Edwards, and I just always liked her voice. So I did a, a portrait of Sky using kind of the lines and stuff. And she she seen it and, and shared it and liked it and all this stuff and I just thought that was great. But like she wasn't she she had a certain kind of profile but kind of in a different so kind of a, the the band was known for the kind of trip hop movement back in the the nineties, um, early nineties. So it wouldn't be mainstream. So then I did one of Lady Gaga, and what happened was I put it on a site that she started up for her fans, and I just kind of came across it. So I put it up and I fell asleep for a daytime nap on a Saturday. I think I was going out that night, so I had a disco nap, as I call it. And I uh, woke up from my disco nap, and sure enough, my phone was just blowing up, and it was like, oh, Lady Gaga, like your post, and blah, blah, blah. So that was, that was phenomenal. So I said, I wonder if there's something I can do here now. So I just started painting famous people. And this was back before the algorithms got us and stuff, and, you know, you couldn't reach anybody. So what I would do is I would find a unique hashtag, giving away my trade secrets here now. Right, so, brilliant. So this is great up. media marketing yeah, yeah. here. Vietnam. Now, I don't know if it works anymore, so I'm telling you now, because it hasn't worked for me <laughs> in ages. I'm going to after this. <laughs> so um, I, I, I would find a unique hashtag. So I would go and I'd, I'd put up, say, oh, I don't know, geez, like hashtag, hashtag Beyonce loves, I don't know, avocados, right? And Beyonce would put it on her page. And so when if she clicked into her own hashtag, there'd be Vincent's picture of her and then she might share it. So that's how I got a lot of the celebrities. So I didn't spam them or I didn't constantly put stuff up. So I did one of Tyra, Tyra Banks, a supermodel. And um, I had just done it way too out of proportion. I said, Lynn, she looks like an alien. I said, she doesn't. And Lynn said, just put it up and just see. It's just, what's the word? Are you kind of fishing now at this stage? I'll throw this up and see your... Yeah, I was kind of like, look, I mean, she obviously goes scouting for models and stuff as well. So sure, logically, she'd be down looking through her hashtags for the next big thing or whatever and she'd reach out for them. So I'll just do a picture of her. So what happened was then I got contacted by the production and this was months and months after and they said, oh, Tyra loves your uh, portrait over and she'd like to commission you to do work for the show. And I was like, oh, yeah, BS or whatever. There's someone now fishing for uh, So this my, is a massive details. show now. America's Next Top Model. Yeah, America's Next Top Model, yeah. It's, huge. It's, in case for anybody who doesn't know, this is a huge a huge deal in, in the States. It's it's a franchise now at this stage. So it's gone international. And um, so contracts were signed, bits and pieces. And I was, I'm the only artist to date to have been commissioned to have stuff pop up at the end of the show. So, off the back of that then, like, I mean, the experience wasn't actually a positive one. It wasn't at all, it was, it was something I look back on now and I would move forward with trepidation doing it again, to be right. honest. Um, now, I can't say a whole lot about it because they signed into a non-disclosure agreement. So, it's, it was very hard well, to... Well, they be listening to what's the story, do you think? Ah, uh, who knows, you maybe wonder. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I'd, I'd have, I have, I've stuff to speak about, but I just have to be kind of... Um, a bit tentative about it because I, I do I do take it on on the chin as well. If something happens like that to me, and I mean a few things throughout the years have happened where you just take it on the chin. You say, look, you just put that in your back pocket and then you learn from it for your book, maybe. Uh, well, yeah, my yeah, my memoir, as I say. <laughs> uh, but uh, after that, then I was getting a few offers from people, and what was happening was they were trying to sign me into non disclosure agreements, and then they wanted me to work for free. And I just kind of 
it kind of really unveiled that side of the entertainment industry to me where I was like, geez, there's no such thing as just people being, people. you know, gi- yeah, or just giving you your dues, basically. If you yeah. want my product, you know, pay me for my product and you can use it. I kind of then kind of stepped back from doing, this is when the trees all came in, and then I stepped back from doing the portraits because I was getting so disenfranchised with, with, the, with the celebrities and how kind of, you know, um, oh sure, he should be so lucky that we're reaching out to him. Exposure, exposure, and I'm yeah. thinking, like, exposure isn't yeah. going to feed the kids, lads. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like a band playing in the local pub for for yeah. exposure. And I mean, this is your craft. I mean, this is yeah. your passion. I mean, even when you're playing your music, yeah. art is my passion, and I value my own art because, like I said, I I'm I know that I am not the art. I am not the gift. I'm responsible for this art, so I feel responsible for putting it out there and protecting it. So I kind of stepped back from doing them, and then I kind of came into the trees. But the portraits now have kind of changed into, um, well, I only paint kind of uh, like posthumous portraits now. So I, I study p- people in art history and I kind of paint them again because once you're, you're dead, your legacy is set in, in stone. So, I mean, they said, like, don't meet your heroes. But like saying that as well, I mean, I was um, approached by Roisin Murphy's management and, and she commissioned me to um, have her portrait of, of her with the lines etched into her vinyl. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sleek looking. But I asked for a meet and greet with her. So I had a meet and greet with her and that was phenomenal. And then I had not done a portrait in, oh, it must have been years. And I was just all in with the trees. I was making money with the trees and they were going really well. And Alanis Morissette was coming to Ivy Gardens. And Lynn said, you have to do one of Alanis Morissette. I said, oh, Lynn, I said, but what if she's, you know... Oh, she pulls tire on me. What she pulls, you know, what she's not as nice. And, so Lynn is responsible for a lot of this stuff. Yes, Lynn is responsible for a lot of stuff, believe it or not. Lynn's the, the main driving force. I mean, Fantastic. I have a huge support behind me with her and I mean, without her. And I, I, I say it as often as I can um, that if it wasn't for Lynn, I wouldn't have taken some of the big scary steps that I've taken uh, because naturally as a creative, I'm self-doubting anyway. Um, and you always need someone just to give you, like I said, like Paddy, like my lectures and stuff, just give you that little extra push mm. Just to kind of make it, just be a little bit braver with it. Okay, let's hear from from Roisin Murphy. Hello. So I was just scrolling through Instagram one day and I saw this image which I was tagged on and I was blown away by it. And I had in my mind putting out this remix version of a song called House of Glass um, on a picture disc. And this image seemed very glacier and the line was very beautiful and iconic and I was very drawn to it so I asked Vincent could I use it and and, and that was that the beginning of something beautiful one of the big stars here Vincent wow that's what amazing <laughs> how'd you manage that one there you go we can't give away our trade secrets it's a non-disclosure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's Roisin Murphy of course a lot of people would know her from her, her, her band Maloko mm. uh, back in the 90s but she's still a very unique singer fantastic uh, artist but uh, so that was Roisin so that's where that came from that's lovely thanks Roisin yeah. um, I'd be kind of, kind of checking in with her every now and again me and Roisin be kind of keeping in touch um, to see if we could do something together in the future but I mean she would have been a huge inspiration for me like not only like before kind of Gaga came on the scene Roisin was kind of breaking all those boundaries as well it's not to pit one against the other or anything mm-hmm. but Roisin was taking a lot of very very big risks musically uh, when she left Maloko and visually as well in fashion and I just remember thinking oh she's really out on her own and what she's not doing is she's not bowing down to the pressure of that one big hit because she's you know notoriously known for turning down Calvin Harris Right. Um, and Calvin Harris wanted to collaborate with her and she said no because she didn't actually I, well I suppose I can't speak for her but 
that could have met her, her household name again after Maloko and she chose to take the art. She's happy with the substance. Though. Yeah, and that really, like that even gives me chills even saying that because it just shows that's someone really devoted to her craft and I really look up to that and respect that in somebody. Mm-hmm. So I do try to kind of, with, with people who I really look up to and respect, I try to kind of, you know. Okay. That was uh, Roisin Murphy, of course. We're going to another very famous woman now. Your mammy. Thank you, Lloyd, for asking me to say a few words on behalf of Vincent. And to date, I am so very proud of Vincent and his achievements to date. He's worked very, very hard and I'm very proud of him. And especially he does a lot of charity work behind the scenes quietly for a lot of people, which has raised a lot of money. One of my fondest memories that I remember Vincent from the age of three, always having a pen, a crane, piece of paper always drawing and he used to draw on the walls and from the age of three there were my fond memories of him but one that always stuck out in my head was one day I seen him sitting on the top of the new road in Clara County Offaly and he drew the balcony of our house that we lived in in the new road at the time he just scribbled it and did so much detail with it that I framed it so he was only I think between 12 and 14 then He was always very, very talented. He got into loving uh, the Spice Girls and he asked me could he draw the five of them on his wall in his room. And down to detail, Lloyd, he was able to draw all the Spice Girls. Very, very proud of him and his achievement. At one time, I remember him doing paintings of the trees and I lost my mother at the time. And he did a lovely painting of a body and I'm the second oldest of 13 in my family and did the whole 13 uh, stems of the of the tree, which proved to be very popular and sold very well for him. He's the oldest of my three sons and I, he was always, always very gifted, always very different. When I say very different, he always came up with good ideas and kept going at it and going at it. So to this date, I am very proud, very, very proud of Vincent Devine. It's your mammy now. Not like a mammy's words. No, huh? you can't be. Irish sure you can't. Yeah. No, no, it's you fantastic, can't. isn't it? Yeah. From the heart. Yeah, she was a great mother. I mean, she was a real worker. I mean, the two of them were just workers. Yeah. And I mean, we never wanted for anything, and it was it was very much about kind of putting the putting the head down and getting the work done. And that's kind of where I suppose I get a lot of my my drive from as well as you know I've I've a young family now as well, and I I took a good example from my parents of just work put the hard work in and it'll all pay off in the end you know Vincent one of your mantras is uh, and I quote I want to paint something that you cannot hold in the palm of your hand or see with the naked eye explain that come here when I wrote that I was like Vincent that doesn't make any sense right (laughs) actually we're going back to the Spice Girls now in a minute (laughs) oh come here if I ever met one of the Spice Girls I'd have a nervous breakdown I love the Spice Girls actually here listen to this if you want to be my lover just put that in there yeah yeah just just for good measure um but who was your favourite Spice Girl actually Jerry was my favourite one alright yeah. she had all the edge you Not know bad. all the edge <laughs> and the short skirt and stuff so she had all the edge but you were saying about that uh, your mantra about not uh, see with the naked eye yeah so when when I when I wrote that I kind of wrote it um, when I write my stuff down I always try to handwrite things before I type them and usually stuff kind of flies out that you don't really um, account for and when I wrote that I looked at it and said Jesus that doesn't make any sense so I have found actually historical references to what that means and I didn't realise until I had done the research afterwards. So that's actually um, an idea that was penned by um, Alexander the Great's painter, he was called Apelles. 
And Apelles was the first person to paint the unpaintable. So it was a Renaissance idea. So 1500s, around the time, you know, Big Leo, Big Leonardo. Um, and painting the unpaintable was painting, Apelles painted lightning. So he was the first person to paint something that you couldn't tangibly look at and observe. So he painted the unpaintable. And then when I heard that, I said, oh, that's what I meant all along. But right, that was in retrospect. So painting the unpaintable is painting something that you can't tangibly observe. Or it's something that, that, that looks realistic, but it couldn't be realistic. So that's where surrealism and Savro Dali's work comes in, like the melting clocks and things like that, which you'd be best known for. So it's painting something that looks like you could actually pick it up but it could never exist in the real world. So that's what paint the unpaintable kind of means. If anyone see my recent Facebook post about Vincent, you will see a huge portrait done by yourself, Vincent, of Madonna behind the woman herself on stage, of course, on her Rebel Heart tour. That must have been a huge personal achievement. Well, uh, how that came to me was Madonna's people reaching out for people to submit work. So I just put it in um, in the hopes it would be shown and I didn't get any confirmation about it. So I just sent it off. And then a, a, a follower of mine from, um, I think she was in California, sent me a picture of it. And she said, I've seen your work on the Madonna tour. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, your work popped up behind Madonna. I said, you're joking. So she sent me the picture. And that's how I found out about the Madonna thing. So the photo op for that was great, you know, because it was huge. What did you think of that when you got this picture of Madonna? I just thought it was incredible. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was incredible because obviously Madonna's such an icon. Massive, Um, 335 million albums sold. Yeah, just incredible. So, but that's kind of, I mean, I've been doing a lot of other stuff as well that didn't come to fruition. So that was at the stage of my career when I was just constantly just chugging along and pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to get any sort of exposure I could to kind of get that big break. And then after the tire thing, then I became kind of disenfranchised with the whole thing because I was like, oh, when you get it, you know, it can be a little bit disillusioning to a point, you know. Going back for a second there, you were talking about selling your paintings on Stevens Green. Is that kind of a rite of passage for artists? I think it kind of should be to a point. I mean, like I said, you're no better or worse than anybody else when you're on the streets of Dublin. And the best thing about Stevens Green is, is you don't know who could be walking across the far side of the road. So they can just pop over. So a lot of the dragons will be walking the far side of the road and you have the Shelburne and people coming out of the Shelburne and stuff like that if you're lucky to get that pitch on that side. And that was my thing about it. I was like, look, it's a good place. There, there's that and there's Merrion Marion Square, which is outside the National Gallery. And it's a good place just to kind of go and, and put yourself among because you're 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 just it's just you're relying on the, the actual painting to sell the work, not just you or not your background or not whatever. That comes afterwards when you pull in the attraction. And when people see the work and then they actually like you, like personally, then they're quicker to buy off you. Um, so, yeah, it's a good rite of passage, I think. Like I said, I always like to have two things going on in my practice because I can get very bored doing doing anything. It, not that it's anything the same, getting bored doing anything repetitively. When I stopped doing the portraits, I had taken up the trees and then I started doing... So what happened actually was... That's your ambigotry collection. They're the ambigotry ones, yeah. So they're all on the website. So like I have a a huge range I can do with them so I can make them really personal. So the the one thing now I'm rolling out over the next few months is some of the trees actually have uh, faces on the top of them. And I've taken the kids, my three kids, and I've put their faces on top of them. And then, for example, Thais was eight months when I took a picture of her. So she has eight very thin trees underneath her to represent eight months. And then Annalie is nine, so she has nine trees to represent each year of her life. And then Rowan had four. And I'm hoping then when they go in ten years, I can do another one of them. So, I mean, and then I do things with, like, um, music notes where I can put, like, sheet music of, like, your first dance and stuff onto the music notes. And and I've done things where um, I do these uh, trees where I do the king and the queen chess pieces just to represent male and female. 
and people have kind of come into the studio and you could chat me for like an hour or two hours sometimes and it, it tends to get quite deep quite quickly I mean when you're in front of people and you give them a space to open up generally they'll open up mm. and some women have said to me look I had a miscarriage when you know about four months into the pregnancy and I was going to call her I don't know um, I was going to call her Sarah so what I'll do is in the Queen one I'll put a little S in the foliage and nobody will ever see that Right. unless the, the the mother wants to divulge the information. So that S is hidden in there. Yeah. So like the child will always be there in spirit almost. And that's what the trees are kind of like. The trees are like, even when we're all dead and buried or whatever, we'll still feed the earth and that'll feed the trees. So we'll still always be around. It's like reincarnating so with nature. So there's something hidden amongst the trees then? Some of them, yeah. And uh, But then with the trees as well, I've I, I've done one where um, this, this gentleman reached out to me and said, I'd like you to do a tree in the middle of a field on its own. I said, well, that's a male response if I ever heard one, you know, so I said, there's something deeper here. So I, I reached out to him and I kind of said, look, I said, what were you thinking? And he said that his 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 wife had passed away. She was only in her early 30s um, and left behind two small girls. And he just wanted something to kind of represent that that sense of, of loneliness. And I said, well, look, I said, can you just leave it with me for a few weeks? And I said, I'll try and think of something that maybe might add a bit more of a dimension to it. And it ultimately, um, what happened was I did uh, a king tree in the middle of the field where he used to walk with his wife. He used to walk along a promenade up by Scaries. And it was him as the king tree. And then there was two little trees underneath his canopy. There were his two girls. And then his wife was these petals falling down from the sky or heaven or whatever you want to look at. And she was blonde. So there were like little gold petals coming down. And just that kind of stuff. So it kind of shows that art is not just something that's visual and should be assessed visually is something that can actually be the person can be injected into the piece and it ceases then being Vincent Devine's work it then becomes our work or your work and I tend to step away from it then and then it becomes like a family heirloom of sorts and that's the real power of art which I don't think people fully appreciate because people are are so you know it's, it's kind of I need to make a living I need to make sure I do something that sells and I mean my long term aim in my career when I'm an old, old man, is to basically have been said, oh, he's after changing how people view art. That's my long-term goal. It's, it's not just something that I like it or I don't like it. And that's not anybody's ignorance. That's just the way our society has made us assess everything. Yeah. I like it or I don't like it. So that's where I kind of like to show people that you can do so much more with the trees. You can commemorate loved ones that have passed away without having to have a picture because a picture is very visceral to look at because it brings all these sad emotions. Whereas if it's a tree... And it's something else and it looks like a landscape. It's like a window of your house. You don't walk by your window every day, every window of the house and say, oh, look at that lovely view out my window. But when you want to appreciate, you stop in front of the window and you look out there. And that's what you can do with a painting. Painting should function like an extra window in your house. And when you want to really look at it and get into it, you can get into it. And you can, like you can do with your own mind. But I find when people get it out onto a canvas, it does heal a certain amount. It's very cathartic for them where it does kind of, once it's out and it's, it's physical on the canvas it seems to do something for people. That's something I can't really explain. Mm. And that's kind of what I, I, I want to kind of achieve with the work, you know. It, especially when you're dealing with, with somebody who's had a certain amount of trauma or something or something with their childhood. And it, that's kind of what art was kind of... Art seems to be something that... It does something neurologically to your brain. You can't really explain what it does. It's like when somebody... I don't know, but if, when you play music, I mean, it, it sets off all these chemicals in your brain. does something... And we don't fully know enough about consciousness in, in and of itself or what happens neurologically. That I know it releases the chemicals or whatever. Um, but it is a huge responsibility for someone to come in and give a commission. And that's why I always try to, I say to the client, you can be as involved or as uninvolved as you want. 
But if you're if there's any sort of worries about anything, you have to let me know from the outset and be very crystal clear and upfront. And I think a lot of people, because they think that I'm not an artist. Now, you can't come in now as a client to tell me that I should be putting that tree over there instead of there because I'll tell you exactly where to go. But in regards to content, some of the best ideas I've ever had were from client suggestions that I would never have thought of in the first place. And like a pure testament to that is a woman came to me and said, will you draw a GAA crest for me? My, my two friends are, are GAA mad, Dublin GAA. And I said, I'm not drawing you a crest. I said, go and print the crest out or get the jersey framed or whatever. And then I said to her, look, will you let me have a think about it for a while? Because that's usually what happens. Someone comes with an idea and if it's flat out, no, it's a flat out, no. But sometimes I can look at the areas in the middle and say, we could make this work. So I did the GAA crest and I did the, the two red castles and they were the two trees. I did the Viking ship then in the background and I did, and this will all be on my website as well, and I did the crow up and flying in the sky and it was just the biggest hit. So off the back of that then, I started doing a series with the trees of the, the coat of arms of each of the counties. So I sold the awfully one to an awfully couple and the Dublin one went to the Lord Mayor's ball and the Lord Mayor was bidding on the Dublin ones, just three castle trees. Very simple, just very kind of effective and just to the point. And that, that, that raised money for charity then. So I gave that one for charity, the Dublin one. And as um, a client of mine, is, is she's her own personal charity where she houses people up in Dublin who are travelling from the country and they can't afford accommodations. She gives them free accommodation in Dublin. It's called Hughes House. Mm-hmm. And she gives free accommodation for people coming up from the country if they have sick children in different hospitals throughout Dublin. It's a fantastic charity. Uh, so I gave that to her because I said to her, if you ever need me to, to do anything or donate something, just hit me up and whatever you want, I'll give you. you know? Is that something you get, a, obviously, a personal satisfaction from, giving back? Yeah, well, I always think if you're, if you're lucky enough to be doing okay, um, especially it's something that you deeply, deeply love as a passion, you should kind of pay that forward. And, I mean, I've been very lucky. I've had no sick children and, so, and just stuff with people, parents who have, like, ill children, sick children, terminally ill children. It just, I, just, I just can't, it just gets me. So I limit my charitable um, things to usually children's charities because I don't want to spread myself too thin in regards to donating stuff. So I just focus on children's charities. And how I started doing that was, is my cousin Catherine, um, her child, uh, Megan, has cerebral palsy. And Jack and Jill approached me to do work for them. And I just, so I did, I, I did um, a giant egg. They did these big massive fiberglass eggs up in Dublin. And I, I did one off the back of the work they seen in the RDS in my first year. And that raised five and a half thousand for Jack and Jill. So that's a huge amount of hours that goes towards helping out with nurses and stuff. So I, I do try to do as much as I can, but I, I don't overly publicise it. But I, I kind of have to start publicising it a bit now because I like people to know, that I, be aware that I'm available okay. for charity, for charitable causes and stuff. So, I mean, we've one gone off to Monaco for this week and that's going to be donated in Monaco. Um, and then I'd be hoping to do Lord Mayor's Ball again if that opportunity comes up and things like that. Now, it's good for, for me to get my work out there as well, but the core ethos of it is is to give something back. And, you know, I've done uh, Pip O'Connor's um, events as well and stuff. And, I mean, it, it's, just, it's, it's just been great. I mean, just to feel like something that I can, that, that I dream up in my head can go into somebody's house and that somebody can actually benefit from that health-wise. That's fantastic. the real gift, really, isn't it? You it know, is. That's, it's absolutely yeah. fantastic and well done. Is there art that you get attached to? Is there some that you just don't want to sell? Oh, I actually tried to buy one back here a while ago. You did? Yeah, there's one, <laughs> there one of them I tried to buy back, and she was having none of it. And I, I actually offered her three times what, I paid, what she paid for it. Why is that? I don't know. That was, that was the first one. It was an abstract one. It wasn't anything spectacular. You know, it's just... It's so, 
it's when I kind of knew that I had something different. I just, I, it's a very mundane painting to most people's eyes. But it's when I stood back and I said, oh, maybe I have something different here. Maybe you're just not, maybe the run of the mill, like, you know, still life paint or whatever. And by the way, I've nothing wrong with people painting realism and stuff, but I think it kind of limits the narrative to a point. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just kind of very much... Uh, I kind of go with the flow sometimes with kind of how I'm being led. And then sometimes I will paint something and I just have it in the house. And there are ones that I archive for myself to show my progress. So I have some very dicey looking tree ones now that was when I just kind of was starting them out. So I like to keep ones. And as I come into my studio, I go up the stairs. And at the first thing you see in the stairs is all my old work up along the side of the warehouse. So it kind of reminds me, you know, it's it's kind of like symbolic. I've climbed up the stairs every day and I'm greeted by the things that Has kind of... Has it changed of, much through the years, your paintings? Oh yeah, drastically, drastically. So, I mean, my early work was all surrealistic work. So it was like all these kind of shifting bodies with like these big head cavities and wings coming out of things. But I did do the Children of Lear series where I was having the, the, the kids twisting into the swans and there was like wings and stuff coming out. Because I, I, I did kind of notice when I was teaching the kids that we are kind of losing our heritage a little bit, those kind of really old stories. And there's no harm, you know, keeping the stories around. I mean, I know traditions come and go and some traditions become outdated and they don't really lend themselves very well to progress. But myths and legends don't really date. And I think it's lovely to have like Tyrion and Og and have... Um, all these other things like the children of Lear as well so I did those and then I kind of progressed into the trees and then like the the portraits then progressed into um, like I, I've, I've written a manifesto the manifesto is 7,000 words and it's called Neo-Dimensionism and um, how it came about was it was just so random I was my daughter was uh, scribbling on her, her whiteboard and she was just finding her feet and she was just scribbling scribbling and I'd go in at night time when I was giving her a kiss goodnight and I'd, I'd rub out little bits and I'd turn it into a butterfly or a dolphin and I'd see all these shapes inside these other shapes and she was like Daddy that's really cool so I was started doing it with a few teenage students that I had and I was starting to see stuff and then what happened was I was had a meeting with a guy who I'd only know professionally I wouldn't know him personally at all and but we got on really really well we just had a good kind of rapport so I said to him would you mind me just trying something with you I said I'm going to just give you a piece of paper and I want you to scribble on the piece of paper I said just random so he started doing triangles and I said no you can't do triangles because they're not random I said your brain has to put you know the equilateral equilateral triangle so he said right I have you now I get you so he just kind of off he went so I took the scribble and I turned it around four different ways. What I was doing with teenagers and I could see different things. So when I looked at his one, I seen a fetus in the middle of it and then I seen a flower on the outside and then you turn it sideways and I could see the diagram of the female reproductive system so I could see the womb, the ovaries and stuff. But it was all in scribble. So he kind of got really quiet and I went, oh, well, you know, I look at it again sort of thing. So I can see a fetus inside a flower and stuff. So he kind of said, no, that's kind of relevant. And I said, well, why is it relevant? And he said that his wife had an eptopic pregnancy a few months previously. And that had been on his mind. And I said, you yeah, kind of just went stunned silence. And he said, that's kind of insane. And I said, yeah, that's, I didn't expect a hit on something like that. So I've, I, I started doing the scribbles with people who I wouldn't really know. Some people I knew very well and some people I didn't know very well. And I must have about, I'd say, I must be about 95% success rate. I would have been able to see stuff that I would have no idea. There's actually live footage of me doing it with well, somebody. We'll have to get some of that footage. Yeah, yeah, I'd love you. I can share it. Yeah. But what happened was... Um, I wrote the manifesto off the back of that to kind of try to rationally explain stuff that we don't know about or whatever. But off the back of that, I had a, a psychiatrist who came to me who was a client of mine. And I said to her, look, I'm, I'm hitting on some really personal things with these scribbles. And I said, um, how do I practice this safely? 
So what do you mean safely? I said, what if somebody's had a traumatic past and and it, they've suppressed it and then it comes up in the scribble? And we had a really good, we had, I think we took four or five hours about it, about how to do that practice safely. But I ultimately didn't have enough support from anybody professionally um, to be able to move into that comfortably because I'm very much um, aware of the fact that if somebody has been traumatised, I don't want to re-traumatise them. So I kind of gave it a back seat for a while as well, but I'm just recently picking it back up because I have a client who's um, a psychiatrist in um, Australia. So I'm very interested now to hear what these people have to say about it, if I have a little bit of a support behind it. Because what I do with the scribble is as well then, is I transfer the scribble onto a canvas and then I paint inside the little shapes and it becomes a whole extra piece. So, I mean, when I had my sellout show in, in Dublin, I mean, the, the collector has one of those. Um, so I, it would be nice to kind of open it back up and kind of see if, um, I think I'd probably only do it again if somebody had access to somebody in psychiatry, if they had, if they're going to a therapist already who would be comfortable with them doing it. Um, do you think if somebody comes looking for you to do that, that they might have something in their past? Not not always. I mean, I did it with somebody once and it was just his mother sitting on the couch. You know, so I mean, it's like, so it all depends on what the person's thinking about. But I, I spoke to somebody the other night about this and he said, clearly people trust you enough to do that. It's like when I'm doing the, the paintings and somebody of, of a past, of a loved one's passed away. Um, I, I generally, people, I think, people know I'm the real deal and I'm not going to try and, you know, and that's why I don't publicise a lot of this stuff as well. And I'm kind of a bit nervous and, and scared of it really because, I mean, to be able to do something like that at that deep level. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of where I kind of, the manifesto came from. I said, God, there's so much we don't understand about the world at large and stuff. And I mean, art can just inform some part of that. And that's kind of what my primary goal is now, is I'm doing all these old artists and I'm finding little nuggets of information that people didn't know about them. And it's kind of leading towards kind of uh, that artists can do something kind of to communicate the world at large intuitively that we can't really rationally explain. So I'm trying to find a rational way to explain it. So I'm kind of reaching out now to people in different fields professionally, like psychiatry. Um, I've a, she's a neuroscientist, so she's been in and she's been talking about different bits and pieces to me and quantum physicists and stuff. So I've reached out to certain people in different fields and they've been very given with their time, so it's very good. So they find it quite interesting, you know. Very good. Speaking of stranger times, has COVID been uh, hard to get through for artists? God, I think you'll find a lot of artists have said it's been like, we're always on our own anyway. I mean, I, I don't know about everyone else, but I mean, I'm I'm extremely solitary. Even now with my with artist friends, I have very few artist friends. Um, I've peers who I'd reach out to if I needed a little bit of a a good critique. Um, but generally, I'm in the studio most days, sometimes seven days a week. From twelve, I'm, I'm a real night owl, so I don't, you don't see me up now at seven a.m. or like this. Um, so I'm up in the studio from twelve o'clock every day usually till about eight and I have an hour then with the kids when I go home then just to put them to bed and just say goodnight and stuff. So it's quite intensive. But during COVID, I had access to the studio because I was totally, I'm totally self-isolated up there. So I, mean, I was, do, do people buy art in a pandemic? They do. Like, I mean, I, I had to do, I had to do an offer to get a, a, a few quid through the door. Um, but people, people are actually buying art now because I think that the COVID has been so traumatising for some people. They want to change the inside of their house. And I think what better way to do it than a nice piece of art because it really does change your whole interior. Colour scheme wise, everything that you can change your, you can change your rug, you can change your throws and you can accent the colour in the painting. So people I think are liking to change their, the environment that we're stuck in for so long with a nice painting. So people are kind of buying, you know. We're going to have a little piece of audio here from two of your biggest fans. Eddie, I'm so, I love when I go up to the studio with you and paint and 
I love your paintings and I'm really proud of what you do for the family. Love you, bye. Hello, hello, it's good to see you. I must say, you've made my day. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> he is a header, he is a head the ball, that lad. But I mean, like having having kids, like when, when we had Anne Lee, I mean, that's a story all in itself. Like, Linda didn't know she was pregnant until she had five weeks left. <laughs> and uh, her mother came in one day and said, Lynn, you're, pre- you're pregnant. And uh, we did the test and we'd, and I'll never forget it. We, uh, so I was this was like six weeks to go. Five weeks, I think it was. I, 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 it was wow. such a blur. I was saving up for a new car. So you didn't even get time to think about it. No, I didn't, know. And uh, I was saving up for a car. And then, sure enough, um, we got the news. I'll never forget, we went to the, the early pregnancy unit and they were doing the exam. And the, the, the nurse had just played, because Lynn was carrying into her back. And uh, sure enough, the scan on the belly and big face. I mean, it was just a face. And I said, is that a face? <laughs> to, the, to the nurse. And she went, yeah. And as she was saying it, she was reaching for the phone. And I went, oh, and then Lynn said, oh my God, is that a face? So Lynn started to black out. So her, I never seen her lips went blue. And she nearly fell off the, the table. Because I started laughing, right? Because I thought, you know, she's this hilarious. Um, so saving up for a car, had to take the money and buy the buggy, the whole shebang, and obviously family and friends and stuff were great at helping out. And uh, sure enough, five weeks later, there she was. Wow. And uh, what, what really happened, I don't know if it happens for, I, I don't know if it happens for most people. You know, I was very much kind of about myself and my progress. And then as soon as I had her, I said, you know what, this is really not about you and Lynn anymore. This is about this this life you've brought in. So you need to kind of get going now. And if you're really going to make the effort now, make the effort now and push yourself. So Anna Lee was the catalyst for me to actually get up off my arse and get everything going. Mm-hmm. Because I have a natural proclivity to be kind of a little bit lazy and a bit laid back. So I always keep myself going forward. But that culminated now in 2018 to an absolute burnout, by the way. I mean, I ended up sitting in Miami and, and was in tears in a restaurant because I had absolutely burnt myself out in 2018. Well, just ideas gone, everything gone? Or? Just, well, like, when, when Annalie allowed me to kind of kind of take the, uh, put the focus on her and said, look, I have this little life that I need to look after. And I mean, it's always been kind of for my kids as well. And I try to balance it. And I mean, I do spend a lot of time in the studio away from them and I am kind of missing the little one growing up, you know, but I need to do that. It's kind of a necessary thing for me to do because I need to be totally isolated and internal in the work and then I get better work out. But 2018 was just a bumper year and that was when the sellout show was. But I, I, I'll never allow myself to be mentally taxed like that again because it was just about putting the head down. And we, and in one year we were in Toronto, we were in the UK, we went to Hong Kong, we came back and did uh, shows three weeks in a row, then Dublin, UK, Miami. Are these must, must be at shows? Do you have to be at these when you're in your game? Well, I mean, if you want to have good sales, you need to go and be in the ones in Dublin, the RDS, because that's where kind of everybody is. And I mean, I've had some pretty serious sales up there now. I mean, that the guy that came in to buy buy the one for the sellout show that was a billionaire guy. I mean, I'm trying to clue who he was. I'm just I'm typical awfully man. I tried. I didn't. I don't care about the business stuff outside of Dublin, but everyone else cared who he was, and I didn't know who he was. But that's probably why he probably you know, liked me a bit more because I wasn't kind of pandering. Um, so. Yeah, the, the show in Dublin is a good one to be at because it's of a good standard. So things are vetted going in there. So you can't just kind of rock up with as much money as you want and just get a stand in the show. You have to be vetted going in and they don't just let anybody in. So when you get in, you know that it's been looked at by people who know what sells and what doesn't sell. There's a certain amount of kudos being in, in there already. Yeah, to a point. But 
my advice for anybody that's looking to kind of dip their toe into the art thing is, is first of all, I think it has to be a vocation. It has to be something, not something you pick up every now and again. And sometimes you see people come into it later in life and that's fine. But for me, it's always been something that's completely connected to my core self. It's like something I just can't, I could never not do anything with art. It's just something that is just in me. And I'd like to think you know, maybe, maybe I'm a man on a mission and maybe I have something, something to do. But I mean, what, what, I, what I say to people is, I mean, it, it's a, it, first of all, it's a great pastime. Because it does do something psychologically. It does give... And, I mean, there's a lot to be said for getting something out of your head that's in there. Even if it's just... And some people... The main frustration with people is they're like, it doesn't look just like it should look. And my whole practice was always when I was teaching. It, you can find your own visual, you know. It doesn't have to be, you know, looking exactly like it is. And I said, also, you're not, you're not painting a tree. You're painting dabs and dabs and dabs that are closer or further apart to look like a tree. So just chill out a little bit, you know. Don't be getting so stressed out about it. It'll, you'll be fine. I'd love to know, Vincent, like I know some music producers who are, are never happy with the finished product. They hear it on the radio maybe in five years' time and say, I should have taken that out or I should have put that in. Is it the same with painting? When you hand something to a buyer and you're saying... Rarely, rarely. But like my Auntie Pat who's um, living in Marion Square now, she uh, always said that my grandfather, Tom, always said, don't let a job out if you're not happy with it. So she, and I always remember that because it will come back to you. It'll come back to bite you. So make sure you're happy with everything you go out. So I always kind of held that, that, maybe that was just a divine thing in me, just to make sure if you're going to do a job, do it right and do it to the best of your ability. So I've, I've always tried to make sure that when the client gets something, now obviously it's subjective and if a colour is a little bit off or whatever, but that's the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. You can't curate something to be exactly within the client's head. So it's why it's good to have a nice range of style and colours for people to come and see. So as people come into the studio, the gallery, I have a gallery and I have my studio space all in the one area. So people come in with an idea of what they want and then when they stand in front of the painting, they totally change their mind. Okay. It's insane. They'll come in and they'll say, I definitely want that painting. And then they'll go and they'll buy something totally different. <laughs> totally different colours and everything. Say with the podcast, like myself here, a music, like I'm probably my biggest critic. Are you your biggest critic? Absolutely. I hold myself to the, the highest standards. But you see, that's where it kind of comes back as well. I mean, I don't feel like I am the art. I feel like I'm responsible for putting it out into the public. So I hold myself. I say, right, if you're going to be putting this stuff out there, then you're responsible for it. So you can protect it. But it's not you. It doesn't really define who I am. I have my whole other set of personality and characteristics outside of the art that's completely not related to the art. Because mm-hmm. I'm quite socially introverted as well when I want to be. And you'll find a lot of artists are like that. Where when I'm in front of the paintings, I, they're, they're like my superpower. But if you take that away, I can be a little bit... And I was introverted as a child as well. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't have many friends and stuff like that. And it was because I was naturally introverted. But when I speak about the art, I kind of come alive. So that kind of makes it, me think that it's kind of fed in from some other pipe from somewhere else. So I'm like, right, well, if I'm going to be putting it out there, you better be damn well responsible for it and make sure that you're putting it out the right way, you know? Vincent, what has been your highlight in your career to date? Um, I think it's it's so hard to call because I think I'm still quite young. And I think if if there was a high point for me, a lot of people would think it would be the sellout show, but that kind of cut the legs out from under me because what happens is is when, when you think that you're going to have you know you did this quote unquote sellout show that's going to be just all up from there and it just doesn't it just cuts the legs out from underneath you kind of, bit of an anticlimax would you say not an anticlimax but it's just very much well what now and then you're kind of left kind of in limbo and then you're trying to make sure that you're topping the next one and stuff 
Um, but it was fantastic to get that kind of, um, that, that bit of a break. I kind of take every day as it comes, so I kind of see it all. I see myself being very lucky to have Lynn back and me and being able to do what I love every day. So a high point, it's generally kind of consistent that I kind of keep a level. See, I don't go too high or too low because it's just too much. I mean, if you, if you go too high the drop down below is far too low. So I try to keep myself at a kind of a level to a point so I don't kind of have my burnout like I had in Miami. Actually, let's hear from that woman who keeps you on your feet. Hi, Ben. It's really so hard to put into words just how much you mean to us all. Um, We've had an amazing 12 years together. Our three beautiful children. I'm sure you can hear Taya shout in the background. Travelling around the world with your work and sitting in the lash and the rain on St Stephen's Green. But I wouldn't change any of us of what's gotten us to where we are today. You always know exactly what I need, whether it's laughter, support or just a nap. (laughs) We are all so proud of everything you've achieved in your career so far and it's only the beginning. I can't wait to see where it'll take you. We will always be right here behind you, pushing you on. We love you so much. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty powerful to have. To have... A woman that loves you like she loves me is, is pretty... Because, I mean, I'm not a dream to live with either. I mean, I'm, I have the artistic temperament, you know, that we're known to have. So, I mean, I mean, I remember when we did the show in Hong Kong and um, it was a lot of money. And I said to Lynn, I said, look, I think it might be a good move. And she was just behind me straight away. There was no kind of, well, Vin, what if this, what if that and the other? It was just bang. And it was very much, let's get on the plane, let's go. And we have her mother who minds the kids as well, which is an absolute godsend. Because uh, we know where they are and we know they're around their aunts and uncles and stuff. And um, so that's her mother, Martina. And if it wasn't for Martina, it would, like, it would have been so much harder to get the work out there and go to Dublin. And she's talking about sitting in the rain at Stephen's Green. I mean, just sitting in the pouring rain and not selling the thing and coming home after losing money. You're just kind of thinking, Jesus, is it even worth it? Is it it's, so you have to, it has, that's why it's, I'm saying to people, it has to be a vocation. Mm-hmm. We went to Hong Kong and we, we, we lost a nice bit of money coming back. And but there's the silver lining again. You see, I flew halfway across the world and had my sellout show. Then a few months later in Dublin, so you have, to, you have to experience every level, don't you? Yeah, but I just find Irish people are just so great for looking after their own. I mean, I even remember my mother saying that when she moved from Tullamore to Clara, and I was doing kind of art classes a few, like just here and there, like, and she said Clara people are great for looking after anyone trying something different, something new. And I mean, people that have bought around and stuff, and I mean. Have been have been great, and I mean I've had a lot of support from people in sales and stuff as well that have come in and said they'd like to support their own, not just because obviously they're supporting their own, but because they like the work as well and they want to kind of support that as well. Mm. So I mean, and I mean just to clear this up as well, if I ever do interviews, I do always mention them from Clara. It's just I'm living in Tullamore, and what they do is you're at the mercy of whoever gets printed. <laughs> so I've had people hold me to task from Clara and say, "Oh, you're from Tullamore now, are you?" Yeah, yeah. I'm like, "No, I'm living in Tullamore." Just so want to clear that up for all from the Clara, Clara people. Living in Tullamore. I'll always say I'm from Clara. I grew up in Clara from Clara. And what is the craziest request you've ever got? It would have been the GAA jersey, I suppose. But like, uh, you mean in regards to kind of out there stuff? Out there stuff. Someone rang you and said, look, I want you over in Toronto tomorrow. I want you to paint this wall for me. No, I... You see, that's the thing with art. You can't, you can't go crazy, really, can you? So that's what art is. I mean, you can't have a crazy request. Generally, you can entertain most things people can throw at you. You know? Fitz, we're going to do a quick fire round. Yeah. Okay. Um... Answer as fast as you can. No stalling or anything. Are you ready, Vincent Devine? What artist would you ask to do a portrait of you? Salvador Dali. What actor would play you in a film? Uh, Brad Pitt, I don't know. Best thing about being from Clara? It's the community over here. First thing you'd buy if you won the lotto? Oh, I'd buy an Audi Q7. I'd lost. It's the price of a house, though. It's mental. Your favourite TV show? Oh, Friends. Worst present you ever got? 
Lynn got me a bottle of tequila for Christmas. She got me a gingerbread house and a bottle of tequila. I said, I don't even drink tequila. First album you've ever bought? Alanis Morissette. Three things you would take to a desert island? Sketch pad, pen, or probably some sort of alcohol. And our last question, it's a million pound question from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I'll hand that to yourself there. Oh, Jesus. So Vincent Devine, who was the first man to travel into space twice? Was it A, Vladimir Titov, B, Michael Collins, C, Gus Grissom, or D, Yuri Gagarin? Oh, Jesus. Easy one, isn't it? It's only a million quid. Simple, yeah. More business that's colleges a, that, sponsoring that, this, actually. So again... So that's a million, million euro question. This is a million euro question. Who when, was the first man to travel into space? A, Vladimir Titov, B, Michael Collins, C, Gus Grissom, or D, Yuri Gagarin. You've no lifelines there, Vincent. This is it for you. Right, I'm going to... I'm sort of torn between A and D. I'm going to go with D. You're going to go with D. Yeah. Yuri Gagarin. It's the wrong answer, Vincent. <laughs> the correct answer is C, Gus Grissom. Well, of course it was, But yeah. you'll never forget that again. <laughs> yeah, brutal. I'm always brutal with this kind of stuff, anyway. So just go back. Any advice for budding artists then? You touched on it there briefly. Professionally now, we're kind of up against it a little bit now. Um, but what I always say to people who are kind of looking to kind of make their way on this is kind of trying to find your own your own voice with it. I mean, it's okay to use different artists and stuff and kind of springboard off different artists and use them. But generally use them and then drop it to find your own visual. Once you have your own visual, that's fine. That's a very hard thing to get. You have to be lucky to get that. But it's 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 about kind of self-belief and self-doubt being in bed together at the same time. And that's a very hard thing to describe. But if you can live comfortably with the self-doubt and then kind of keep yourself going as well, generally you get enough friction to kind of give you forward momentum. That's what I always think, you know. Vincent, have you any other hobbies? Do you do anything else to... I was only thinking that. I just said I need to actually find... I started doing meditation during COVID. Do podcasts, you'd be great. I started doing meditation because I just... Everything was just... The media and stuff with COVID. I said, I need to do something. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. But I started doing meditation... And I do it half an hour every day. So the first thing I would do is I'm into the studio, I lie on the couch and I do the guided meditations that you can find online. And I would highly recommend anybody that suffers with anxiety or any any sort of anxiety to do it. Uh, because it's really after, it's completely changed my personality. It's been just incredible. Now saying that though, I did have a bit of an episode where <laughs> apparently <laughs> I woke up one morning and I couldn't spell. And I couldn't spell anything over seven, over seven letters. And apparently meditation changes the makeup of your brain, you know, f- physically. And the doctor thinks that because I did the meditation, it triggered something. Now, how it happened was I was a and cushion because we were over in Toronto and we came across this place. It's just a, 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 a bottle of tequila. A rosé all day. <laughs> Even better. Rosé all day. And Lynn thought nothing better going ice skating in Toronto, um, you know, behind every, every man. So we went ice skating and Lynn bruised her coccyx, which is still killing her. That's in February. And I went back on my head. So, uh, you know, but, the, but apparently the, the, the GP said, all the work I'm doing lately, maybe you should give me another bang, you know, because it doesn't seem to have done too much. <laughs> right, so where to from here then, Vincent? The next thing now was the manifesto work. I'm doing these beasts of paintings. They're six foot by 12 foot. They're massive things. And what I'm doing is, is they're all to support the manifesto. So I'm doing all these historical figures. They're art, art history figures at the moment. I'm kind of trying to reimagine them. So for example, like poor old Vincent. So what do you know about Vincent? What's the, just, what's the main thing about Vincent van Gogh? 
Yeah, he'd one ear. Yeah, you see, there you go. That's why everyone goes to, right? So what I'm trying to do is... He was a good painter, actually. He was a great painter. But I'm trying to challenge th- that thing of that soundbite about poor Vincent because he really was a, a creature of... of a, a, a casualty of the time he was born in. And do you know his, um, his painting, Starry Night? Mm. With the big swoopy clouds? Mm. Apparently that's the perfect visual diagram for what turbulence is. When you hit that air pocket in, in the sky, that swirl he did, if you drew that, that's what it looks like. Now, come here, Vincent had no idea what they were. And that was when he was coming down from a psychotic episode. So he signed himself into a mental institution and that's when he was on the way down. But, uh, but, Vincent, but Vincent was just an absolute product of... And we, we talk about mental health and stuff now at the moment as well. And he was just an absolute casualty of that. And I'm just trying to challenge people. And I mean, you know, there's a whole like thing that he ate paint. That's his thing. He wasn't eating the paint. What was happening was he was getting paint on his hands and he was changing the brushes into his mouth. And he was, in, and he was inhaling turpentine at the same time as well. Which that drove psychosis crazy, right? But even worse. And it led to him having huge digestive trouble. And we now know he would have been bipolar. So I'm trying to kind of give people an insight into some of the art history figures that you might not know about. Just to kind of change your view on, on art and kind of who the artist was and what kind of art they produced as well. And that's kind of what I'm moving next. So I have two portraits lined up and one of them would be kind of, um, and I can't say too much about it yet because it's just in the final stages. So I'll be going public with that in maybe, we're thinking October, November. And um, I'm painting a portrait of somebody who, who everyone would know. And it's it's really kind of a passion project uh, because of what it stands for. So that'll keep everyone in suspense now for a while. But it's exciting. It's Brilliant. exciting. Yeah, I'm trying to kind of move towards the idea that art can start to heal people and start to do something with it and do something different. And I just seem to have been very lucky and privileged enough to have actually lit on it and found it. And that's why I feel like it's not me. It's something separate from me and I'm responsible for putting it out into the world. Vincent, it's been a massive insight. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you. Huge thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, the work you do for charity is amazing. Thank I you. really hope you keep that up. Uh, the children's charity is very, very important. So once again, Vincent Devine, thank you very much. Thank you very much. My pleasure. They would not listen. They're not listening still. Perhaps they never Start your journey and further your education with Moat Business College. Not sure what direction to take? Need more time before going on to higher education or a career change? With up to 20 QQI Level 5 and 6 courses to choose from, we've got the course for you. Find out more and apply now at moatbusinesscollege.com. You just listened to What's the Story with Lloyd Bracken. Check out all our social channels for info on new episodes. Oh, and thanks for listening. On the town.